Imagine if your big brother was Jesus. And your big brother began to preach and crowds started to flock to him. And then he started saying crazy things, things that only a prophet or somebody who had a God complex would say. Um, how would you feel? What would you do? Uh, would you feel a bit embarrassed? Would you try and get him to see reason? Well, Jesus' family reckoned that he was crazy. Um, John tells us that his brothers didn't believe in him and Mark tells us that they thought he was crazy and they tried to hold him back by force so that he'd stop being so ridiculous. Um, Jesus had brothers and sisters, you know. Uh, At least he had half-brothers and half-sisters. And one of these brothers, most probably the eldest of his little brothers, was named James. Uh, Some of his other brothers were Jude or Judas, uh, Joseph, or Joseph and Simon. They're the ones that we know the names of. And we don't know when James became a believer. We don't know when he became a follower of Jesus. Uh, During Jesus' ministry, James was never counted among the 12 apostles. Two other Jameses were, um, James the son of Zebedee and James the son of Alphaeus. It was quite a common name, but never James the son of Joseph. As far as we know, James was not there when Jesus was crucified. But we do know that uh, when Jesus was raised from the dead, his brother James is one of those to whom he appeared. I'd love to know what Jesus said to his little brother when he came back, when he came back to life again. But of course, we don't know what he said to him. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 12, Um, James is recognised as one of the pillars of the New Testament church. Paul recognises him as an apostle and as an apostle, James holds a great deal of authority in the church. James seems to be the go-to man, the the one who people look to for answers. He, He was the leader of the church. He was the statesman. And this James, James, the brother of Jesus, is the one who wrote the letter that we're going to be studying over the next few months. And as Jesus' brother, James never seeked to elevate himself. He never claimed any special status. There was no family discount or, or special family looking after for James. James saw himself as a slave. Now, in that Bible reading, our Bible translated the word doulos as servant. But a more accurate word to translate doulos is slave. James sees himself as a slave of God and a slave of his big brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. And my, what a change that was for James. He used to think that his brother was crazy, uh, that he was the family embarrassment. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, that all changed. So what does James think of his big brother now? Well, Firstly, he is his master. He calls Jesus the Lord. Now, you tell me, to a Jew, who do they call the Lord? When a Jew says, talks about somebody and this is the Lord, who are they talking about? God. Let me read to you what James wrote from verse 5. He said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is tossed and driven by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Right? So we're asking of God, but if you don't believe, you're not going to receive from the Lord. Who's the Lord? God. What did James call Jesus? The Lord. When Jesus was raised from the dead, James realised that his big brother was exactly who he said he was. So imagine the realisation as it, as it dawned on James that the little boy he shared a bedroom with was God. He used to play in the backyard with God. He thought that God was crazy and tried to restrain him from preaching. Jesus is God. The Father and the Son are one. Now, of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe this, and so to perpetuate their lie that that Jesus is subordinate to God, that Jesus is not God, to perpetuate that lie, they use two different words. They translate the one word, kurios, as the Lord, when it refers to Jesus, And the exact same word they translate as Jehovah when it refers to God. Sometimes within the one sentence they will translate the exact same word in two different ways. But James was very clear. Jesus is the Lord. God is the Lord. I am a slave of God. I am a slave of Jesus Christ, the Lord. So he also named him as the Christ. James is the son of Joseph, but Jesus and James had different dads. Jesus is the son of God. And so Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who Israel had been waiting for. He's the one that they had all of their hopes and dreams pinned on. The Messiah, the Christ. Now, what an incredible statement for a man to make about his brother, that his brother is Christ and Lord. If you made that statement about your brother, it would be an utter lie. But James could say it about his brother, and it was the absolute truth. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, we don't need to delve too deeply into that salutation. At this stage, the church was largely Jewish. Uh, The mission to the Gentiles was either just beginning or it hadn't yet been begun. And the contents of this letter are clearly written to to Jewish Christians. You can tell this as you read it. The flavour of it is is he's writing to people from a Jewish background. And so he just calls them the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And to them, he says, greetings. Now, often when people turn up at my place, I say, greetings. And um, some folk reckon it's all a bit weird. It sort of sounds like, yeah, from outer space, greetings, earthlings, because uh, it's not really a common, we, we usually say, g'day, don't we? Something like that, or hello. But greetings, what does that mean? Uh, I suspect my wife included thinks it's a bit weird when I say greetings, dear Robin. Yeah, she thinks so. 
but it's actually biblical. Um, the, the word translated as greetings is actually chirene, uh, and it means joy. It's a joyous greeting. Uh, and in the Greek, two words after he says chirene, he says charan, which is just another way of saying the same thing. It's basically the same word. So he says, count it all joy my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, all right? So greetings, joyful greetings, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's right for Christians to say greetings. It's expressing the joy that we have, and it's a reminder of the joy that we should have. Greetings. In fact, you can say it to each other. Greetings, everyone. Greetings, greetings, joyful greetings. Righto. Now, at this point, um, I'm actually not going to work through any more of that particular passage now. Um, At this point, I just want to give us a a little bit of a big picture view of the letter of James. Because we're going to be working through James in some detail over the next few months. But right now, right at the beginning, I just want to take a moment to have a bit of an overview of what it's about. Why did he write this letter? Now, the book of James has been described as the Proverbs of the New Testament. Um, a fair bit of it just seems to jump instantly from one topic to the next. It might just have one sentence or two sentences on one topic and giving advice on that and then nearly straight away it jumps onto another different topic entirely and, and, and just has one or two sentences giving advice on that and then it'll jump again. And so some people look at, at that and go, oh, it's just like the Proverbs. But it's not really, it's not really proverbial type literature. It's a letter and it's a letter which is teaching us a very important biblical truth. If I was to use one word to sum up the drive of this letter, I would use the word non-passivity. Now, have you even heard of that word? I think it is a word. (laughs) Non-passivity. To be passive means that you have something done to you and you take very little or no part in it yourself. To be non-passive means you actively play a role in it. Okay? So let me give you an example. Um, if you're a bit like me and you need to lose a bit of weight, the passive way to lose weight is you turn up at the doctor and he does liposuction. He gets the tube and he cuts a hole and he shoves it up your skin and sucks all your fat out. <laughs> You've seen it on telly, it's just disgusting. <sighs> That's the passive way to lose weight. The, the non-passive way is to eat less and do more. Okay? Now, let, let's have another example. If your house needs cleaning, the non-passive way is for the cleaner to turn up once a day and um, turn up with the bucket and the mop and the vacuum cleaner and you just... Stay there watching your telly while the cleaner does all the mopping and cleaning and vacuuming and, and ironing and whatever else needs to be done. That's the, non, that's the passive way. The non-passive way is to get up in the morning and pick up your mop and your bucket and you start cleaning and scrubbing. And, okay, so you're getting, getting it? Non-passivity is, is actually when you actually take a role in it yourself. Now, it doesn't always have to be the full role. 
but we do actively play a part in it. Now, that's an imperfect example uh, and comparison for the passive, non-passive Christianity. I was just trying to let you know what the word means, okay? Passive means you don't have any part in it at all. You don't have to do anything. It's all done to you. Non-passive is where you take a part in it. So, we turn up at church. The passive approach to church is you come, you sit, church gets done to you, you get up and go home. The non-passive view is where you come along and you engage in worship and you share in worship and when we pray, you pray along with us and when we sing, you stand and sing. Okay, Seeing the difference between passive and non-passive. Now, when it comes to faith, some Christians have a very passive faith. That is, God's done everything, I don't need to do anything. Whereas James is saying that sort of faith, a passive faith, is a misunderstanding of Christ. That kind of faith is dead. That kind of faith is barren. And it'll do you no good at all on the day of judgment. Because the Christian life is a very active life of living and loving and serving and giving and trusting and enduring. It's a faith of commitment which holds fast. It's a praying faith. It's a doing faith. It is a non-passive faith. And James is quite blunt. Believing without doing is not a faith that will save us. Faith without works is dead. I'm going to throw in here now, it's just as dead as works without faith. The two must go together. Now that might be a bit different to what you believe, but that's what the scriptures say. And of course in the Reformation we have the whole argument of grace versus works and we're going to be talking about that in, in far more detail in a few weeks' time when we get to that topic in James. But just for now, I'm just going to say this as as part of the introduction. And remember, this is only an introduction. This is not a complete statement on what James says. The Christian doctrine of salvation and justification, what we believe, is we're saved by faith alone. True? I hope so. I hope we've got this. We're saved by faith alone. It's not what we do that saves us. If you could live a completely sinless life, well, you don't need to be saved. But the trouble is, of course, none of us can. And so we're all in quite a pickle. And Jesus died to save us from that predicament. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. And I'm not going to explain this to you again now. If you don't understand grace, if you don't understand that to be saved we repent of our sin, we believe in Jesus and follow him. If you don't know what you have to do to be saved, please, please, please come and talk to me about it um, because this is the most important thing for you to grasp. Okay? Um, becoming a Christian is the most critical thing that any of us can do in our lives. But we're not going to cover that now. But some people criticise James because he doesn't explain all that in his letter. He doesn't talk about the cross at all. 
He doesn't explain some of the basic Christian doctrines. But you see, he doesn't need to. That's not the purpose of his letter. He's writing to people who are Christians already. They already know this. They already know how to be saved. And yet people like the reformer Martin Luther, right, a pretty important guy in the history of the church, he criticised James. Luther said of him, he says, he mangles the scriptures and thereby opposes Paul and all scripture. And then he went on to characterise this letter as an epistle of straw. Right? He's saying there's no substance to it. Don't bother reading it, folks. Now, that's a pretty big call for, for a preacher to say to his congregation. Don't bother reading that part. It's just, it's all empty. Now, I reckon it's a silly thing to say. You see, James had the authority of an apostle. And he reckoned, and Luther reckoned that, that James opposed Paul and therefore he opposed all scripture. And yet, you know what? In the scriptures, as we're reading Acts over the last few months, there's a couple of times there where Paul looked to James for authority. And Luther said this because James didn't talk about some of the great Christian doctrines, particularly some of the doctrines that were reinvigorated during the Reformation, doctrines that Luther held so dear and doctrines that we hold dear too. But you see, James didn't need to reteach these things. He didn't need to go over that ground again. James wasn't telling us how to find initial salvation. He was teaching us that Christianity is not a passive religion, something we just have done to us. He's teaching us about how when we are a Christian, how to live as a Christian. When James looked around him, he he saw people who, who believed in Jesus, but they weren't following Jesus. And that was wrong. A people who were so fixated on faith alone that they would never act in faith. And faith isn't faith at all unless it's accompanied by actions. Faith isn't faith at all unless it moves us to obey the commandments of God. And so the purpose of this letter is not so much to inform but to command exhort and encourage. There are more imperatives in the book of James than any other New Testament book. Do you know what an imperative is? No? I've got some big words today, haven't I? An imperative is a command. Right? It's a statement that leaves no room for quibbling. It's like when a parent would say to the child, you will clean your room. It's an imperative. It's not saying you might clean your room. It's saying you will or you must. Okay? And there are more imperatives in the book of James than any other book of the New Testament. Now, I didn't count them up myself. I just read that in a commentary. Um, James was concerned that the world was getting into the church. These so-called Christians said they believed, but they lived just like the rest of the world around them. You know, 
As I was preparing this message, I read the entire book of James a number of times. I don't know how many times, maybe five, six, seven, maybe eight times. It, um, and I'd encourage you to go home and, and give it a read. Read the whole book. It's quite a short book. Um, and if you're a good reader, it'll take you less than 15 minutes. If you're a slow reader, it'll still take you less than half an hour. Okay, it's well worth doing right at the start of doing this series. If you can sit down and read the whole of the book of James in one go, it'll it'll actually come alive to you. Okay, it'll give you a a grasp of of the of the whole overview of the letter. And as I read it, I, I realised just how much James drew from the teachings of Jesus in what he said. And it caused me to consider again the place of the Gospels the place of the teachings of Jesus, the place of the commandments of Jesus. Now, at Bush Disciples, most of us would consider ourselves to be an evangelical church, right? Evangelicals. We believe the word of God and we believe it's important to to share that word with others. The trouble is, for more and more people who class themselves as evangelicals today, They simply see the teachings of Jesus and the commandments of Jesus as an unachievable mark that he sets which helps us to realise that we need to be saved. And once I've been saved, then the teachings of Jesus have done their job. I've I've realised I'm inadequate, I've given my life to Jesus and that's it. But very clearly in the teachings of James and the teachings of Jesus, the purpose is much, much greater than that. Imagine if the disciples um, heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount and then they responded to Jesus by saying, well, thank goodness that because we believe in you, we don't have to actually do any of that stuff you just told us you expect. That would just be wrong. They were to say, because we have faith, we don't have to do that. Because we have faith, we are filled with Jesus' righteousness, therefore we don't have to keep his commandments. would be wrong. And as we work our way through James, we're going to see some discussion on wisdom. To James, wisdom is almost a picture of the Holy Spirit. But as he describes wisdom, we're going to soon see that godly wisdom leads to obedience and righteousness and good works, whereas worldly wisdom does not. And I was reminded that right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told the story of the wise man and the foolish man building their houses. And he said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. See, Jesus has every expectation that those who are saved, those who believe in him, once they are saved, that they will strive to follow Jesus in his paths of righteousness. And that's what James highlights in his letter. Once we are saved, 
This, therefore, is how we should live. And the fact that it's phrased as imperatives, you must do this, means it actually requires some effort on our part. Now, that doesn't mean that we will be able to perfectly achieve it. And James recognises this. And as we work our way through, we're going to see where, where he talks about, I don't know if he actually uses the word grace, but he shows us what grace is, how in our failures we are forgiven by Christ, even though we have failed. And so James preaches grace in our failures, but he warns against passivity. Yes, as we live as disciples of Jesus, sanctification means that the Holy Spirit is changing us to make us more and more like Jesus. But James is going to constantly challenge us that to live as disciples of Jesus is not a passive experience. Now, I just want to issue a challenge to you today. As we read and study this book of James, you may realise that James is at odds with what some branches of Reformed theology teach. And the challenge I want to issue to you today is do not downplay what James says. Don't downplay it. Don't try and explain away these apostolic scriptures to try and make it fit your theology. Because that's exactly the wrong way to study God's word. We should always allow the scriptures to shape what we believe about God and not the other way around. We should never let what we believe about God shape how we interpret the scriptures. And so my challenge is this, to pray, Holy Spirit, give me understanding of your word. I empty myself of the teaching of men. I repent of trying to fit you, to fit my picture of you. Sorry, I repent of trying to make you fit my picture of you. Reveal to me your truth and all of its uncomfortable challenges and demands that you may place on my life. Free from worldly wisdom and fill me with godly wisdom. Because that's where it begins. Well, we didn't get very far today. I think we got the greeting part covered. Um... But that's just a bit of an introduction and and we'll probably come back to those same verses again next week and actually discuss what those particular verses are saying to us Um, as we begin to study how the Lord commands us to live out our faith in a non-passive way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we study this book of James, Lord, we, we pray that you would take away the worldly wisdom that we've looked to in the past at times and Lord fill us with your with your Holy Spirit so that we would have godly wisdom. 
Lord, help us to understand what you would be saying to us in this book of James. Lord, as I think about about this this wonderful apostle, this, this man who the early church looked to for advice, your own earthly brother, Lord, it just amazes me that, that, that we can receive advice from, from this man called of you today, a couple of thousand years on, and, and yet it's still so useful. It's so important, the advice that you would give to us. It's still so timely the advice. And Lord, I pray that as we live our Christian lives, that we would not be passive in our faith, that that our faith would always be expressed in actions. Lord, as your Holy Spirit works in us and as we respond in obedience to you, Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.